Okay, barely. That's good. Okay, well, hopefully we'll have some good stuff. Uh, I have one more announcement, uh, if you call it an announcement, maybe an update, recap, that I'd like to share with you guys. So the last, uh, I don't know how many weeks, uh, we've been talking about the missions garage sale uh, that we do every year. Uh, we wrapped that up yesterday uh, at the Sugar Grove campus and wanted to give you guys uh, a bit of a glimpse. So just for some context's sake, uh, the Missions Garage Sale, we do it each year, Memorial Day weekend. We started it back in 2010, so 13 years ago was the first time we did a Missions Garage Sale. When we did that, we uh, rallied everyone together and we raised $2,000 to go towards the missions. And the Garage Sale has only grown since then. So last year, uh, in 2022, the church, all the campuses coming together through the Missions Garage Sale, was able to raise over $25 thousand dollars that goes to support missions all of it going towards missions work like josh was saying uh, just to support our missionary partners around the world we have a lot of people uh, from the different campuses that are going on short-term missions trip it helps fund those trips uh, to make those things possible this summer and so that was a really great year record-setting year last year and this year uh, god continued to only move more and more and so uh, we were so excited to see so many people uh, come out we um, i think it counted over on friday alone over 2200 people uh, we're at the Sugar Grove campus, uh, people shopping, people helping serve. Uh, this is a massive thing that is a, a, just a great way to impact our community, great way to bring people together. Hundreds, hundreds of people from Village Bible Church served and volunteered and gave items. So this is not a select few made the missions garage still happen, but this was a the church came together uh, to make this happen. And many of you guys were even part of that. So it's just a real great blessing to see that. And so this year, uh, we were excited to see not $25,000 come through for missions, but $29,000 come through for missions. And then we were excited to realize that that was only on Friday. Believe it or not, in just the first day of the sale, we crushed all the records. And by we, we really should be saying the Lord did something really wonderful and really, really great. So uh, looking at Friday, almost $30,000 coming through to support God's mission, the gospel mission all around the world. When all things were said and done, uh, the church raised almost $40,000 uh, to support missions. So isn't that just a really, really wonderful thing and just a testimony to the Lord. And how cool is it to come and be part of that and just to see uh, God doing it. So we look forward to sending out our missionaries, uh, our, our short-term missions trip this summer, and just the people who are going to go to the corners of the world with the, the gospel. And, what? You can throw it up. Throw it up. Just give you a little bit of a glimpse, uh, just as things were starting on Friday, how many people uh, were there. We parked in that parking lot. Tristan, Josh, you guys were there. Probably, what, 360 cars uh, in a parking lot. Uh, just thousands of people, I'm telling you. It's just a real, really great encouragement and blessing to see how this, this thing, when we talk about it, it has impact around the world and it has a huge impact right here in our communities. I can't tell you how many people just came out and were so blessed. Like they're walking away like, thank you so much for this garage sale and what it means to their families. And so you got people coming back each and every year. It, it opened at 9 o'clock Friday morning and there were people in line at 7.15. It's like Black Friday, but at a church garage sale. It's insane, the excitement that people have for this. So I just want to take a minute before we uh, jump into the sermon this morning. 
And I want to just uh, take a moment to pray and thank the Lord uh, for a great weekend and also just pray that all the funds, all the work, all the effort uh, that went into that will be used for His glory here in our local areas and with our missionary partners all around the world. So will you join me just in a word of prayer? Our Father, Lord, we come uh, before you today and in all honesty, we are humbled. Humbled that you have given uh, us the opportunity uh, to be part of something like a missions garage sale that started uh, 13 years ago just as an idea to maybe raise some extra funds to support missions and rally people together. And Lord, how you have grown it since then, continue to use it for your great purposes. And so we uh, praise you this morning, looking at just this year, just the, the wonderful things, the thousands and thousands of people who came through uh, the doors of the church that may never come through the door of a church otherwise, but they came uh, to be blessed and to be encouraged uh, and to be served at this garage sale. Uh, we thank you for the hundreds of volunteers, people who uh, gave of their time. They, they gave uh, so sacrificially. They, they gave of their items that they have at home to make this thing possible. That, uh, Lord, it was such a selfless act to come and to serve other people, to serve alongside brothers and sisters in Christ, and to, to serve not just those here, but those around the world. And so, uh, Lord, we are always so amazed at how you take the simple things that we do, and you do wonderful things with them. You do far far more than we could imagine, far more than we could hope. Let me, you far exceeded what we thought was possible for a garage sale weekend uh, this year. So we want to give you all the glory. And Father, we pray that you would take every drop of sweat, every conversation, every detail that was planned, every cent that was raised, and you would use it for your glory for your kingdom's purpose, for your gospel to go out farther to the corners of the world, that it would be a blessing to the missionaries that we partner with all year. There'd be a blessing to those that uh, we're sending out from our own midst this summer to go and to serve uh, other people in, in the farthest corners of the world. And so, Lord, uh, we do this not to pat ourselves on the back, but to give you the glory. Because as uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago, we do missions because worship doesn't exist. Uh, and so we pray that through this, more people would come to see and know who you are and how great and awesome uh, you are and would worship you as the one true creator God who alone is worthy of our praise. And we pray all of this now in the precious and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me this morning in 1 John chapter 4. Joshua invited you to join there. We have spent the past two weeks, those of you kind of joining in with us today, uh, we've spent the past two weeks looking at the awesomeness of God. And so a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about how great and awesome God is. Looking at Psalm 96, where uh, the psalmist declares, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That He is a God who triumphs, a God who reigns, a God who, unlike the, the created gods of mankind, uh, who we we learned are of nothing, for nothing, from nothing, all this. Our God is the creator God who created all things into existence and he reigns supreme over all of it. Who is like our God? Then last week we talked about the holiness of God, that even the angels conceal themselves in the face of God's holiness and they declare to each other, one to another, eternally in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That we learn that God is holy and that He is set apart. Not just that He reigns supreme over His creation, but He's different than His creation. Unlike us as His created beings, 
He has no need. He has no weakness. He is altogether holy. He is different. We learn that He is holy in His absolute moral purity, that there is no inkling, no hint, no trace of fallenness, no trace of wickedness or evil in our God. Who is like our God? And it's been our prayer that in this uh, short series that we've been calling Awesome God, that we would begin to more clearly understand the magnificence of our God in all of His ways, in all of His nature, that we would begin to see and know that our God, the true God, is a transcendent God. A God that has no rival. Our God has no equal that truly, in every essence of who He is and all that He does, He transcends His creation. That He transcends the expanses of our imagination, of our knowledge, everything. We cannot put God in the biggest of boxes that we could create because He is so great and wonderful. Now the problem is, as we begin to talk about this, there's many people who would recognize that perhaps there is a God who is mighty in power, a God who is other than to the world and mankind, who is transcendent. Many people might believe this God to simply just be some sort of higher power that exists out there. They don't know who or what this higher power is really like, but, but there's got to be some sort of higher power that's greater than us. Uh, deists believe in a transcendent God, but they're... God is so transcendent that he maybe spoke all things into existence, created the world, but then has stayed transcendent or separate from it. But we appreciate the fact that as we look to the Scriptures, we are reminded through and through, from cover to cover, that the one true God, as he's revealed himself to us, is a God who is both transcendent and a God who is imminent. And I'm not using the word imminent, M-I-M-I-T imminent, if you will, as in God's about to happen, it's imminent, but imminent as in God is continually and consistently pervading and influencing and sustaining his creation. God has a relationship with what he has created. He has a relationship with us. As a matter of fact, if you're in John chapter 4, if you were to look right back over to 1 John chapter 3, you'd see at the very beginning of that chapter, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Not only has He just created a relationship, He has called us His own. And so, as we look at the pages of Scripture, you look all the way back to the very beginning. God created in what? He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He was with them. And then we see that God dwelt with His people. We see through the pages of Scripture that God governs over His creation. And then ultimately we see as in the new covenant that God Himself took on flesh and dwelt on earth as a man. And the amazing thing, you look at a, a passage like John 3.16, as popular as that is within Christianity, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. It's such a great verse, but I love the fact of the way that the CSB translates it because I know, at least for me, when I read uh, even in the ESV, right? The, for God so loved, we have a tendency to think that God loved the world so much that He gave His Son. But the, the CSB kind of captures the meaning of what, the, what is being conveyed here. What Jesus is saying that, for God loved the world in this way, that He gave His one and only Son, that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. 
So I appreciate the fact so deeply that as we come before this magnificent and holy God, that we can declare that He is transcendent. He is holy unlike any other. That He is greater than any other. That He is an awesome God. But also we know that our God is a loving God. That He is not just a God who is loving. That He's not just a God who happens to love, but as we're going to see here in 1 John chapter 4, that our God is a God who is love, as verse 8 says. So let's, let's look this morning at verses 7 through 12 together here in 1 John chapter 4. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. It's one of those passages of Scripture, and if you were to read on, you'd find the word love even mentioned more times, but you start to wonder, how, how many times can you say love in a couple of short verses, right? Love, 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 and it seems to be the redundant theme of this passage. Then the, the question becomes, as John is saying, that God is love, right? If we are to love one another, it first happens because God has loved us. That we love and we abide in God's love. And so this whole concept of love he's bringing about is defined in who God is. And so the question then becomes is the same question that the old 90s song asked, what is love? Right? And you could probably go through your head and you're singing the tune right now, what is love? Right? And we're not going to get into all that, but that's Jake's jamming out to it. We like that, right? And so that's the question you've got to deal with. If John is saying that God is love, we have to ask the question, that, well, what does he mean by that? Not just that God is love, but what is love? If that's what we're going to understand who God is. And so, as you begin to look at this concept of love, we recognize that we live in a day and age where there is a lot of confusion about this. There's different definitions on what love truly is. And so I was reading a book uh, this past week called Rediscovered Church, and uh, they were talking about this cultural viewpoint of love, and they, they said that love is allowing someone else to pursue his or her own fire, no matter what it is. That it depends on knowing yourself, expressing yourself, actualizing yourself. They said that love requires you to do what's right for you. Love, or at least our definition of it, is the one non-negotiable law. The world does not see that God is love, but that love is God. What a humbling thing to recognize. And in some ways, this this comes out of this idea because some people have at times taken this God is love, say A equals B, God equals love, and you can then flip that. If A equals B, then B equals A. You didn't know you were getting an algebra quiz today. then you could say that God is love, and that's become kind of the mantra of the world's understanding of our God. And so then you start to wrestle with these things as the church begins to preach and proclaim, well, hold on, God also is a just God. 
Well, that's not love. The God that I heard of, the God that I know, is just love. He's not wrathful. He doesn't judge. He... And we have to understand that to say that God is love is not to say that His love is in opposition with His wrath. It's not to say that God's love is in opposition to His holiness, His justice, or any of His other attributes. But rather, we should understand that God is infinitely and totally love in all that He is. That means that God is infinitely and totally love in His righteousness. He is infinitely and totally loving in His anger. He is infinitely and totally loving in His judgment, in His holiness. That we should not look at the love of God as if it made up part of who God is. God is love. Love is not God. We have to keep that straight. So what do we make of this then? If God is love, and the, the implication surely seems as we look at the, the beginning of this passage, as John is articulating, anyone who does not love doesn't know God. Um, and he's, he's talking about love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. And so then you start asking this question, well, well what, is, what do you make of that for an unbeliever? As somebody who is an unbeliever, can they love? Can they experience love? Can they know what love is? Are they incapable of loving at all? And some preachers will probably take time here to dive into the different kinds of love. So let's, let's talk about the different Greek words for love. You've got eros love, which is where we actually get the term erotic. It's the love of passion. And, and so you've got that kind of love. And you've got phileo love, which is that brotherly love where you'd have for your brother or sister, uh, you know, or a good friend in the sense Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You've got storge love. But here, here in 1 John, we're talking agape love. And that's a different kind of love. And you could go into all that stuff, and there's probably validity to some of that. Because it's true, as, as John reads, if we were reading in the Greek, every single time you see the word love mentioned here, it's agape, agape, agapaho. It's, it is never any of these other lesser forms. So some would say, well, yeah, an unbeliever could love, but they could experience love in varying degrees and varying kinds, but not agape love. Because agape love is, is divine love. It's the love that, biblically speaking, is always associated with God. So an unbeliever could have eros love, a love of passion for other people or other things. They could have brotherly love. They could have a love of complacency. Just, something's really nice. I love the weather today. So it's, it's a lovely day outside. Sure, we can experience these different kinds of things. But I think what's so helpful for us and what John does is he begins to kind of characterize what God's love is in this passage. Notice in verse 9. He comes right off saying, God is love. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Right away, John is telling us that God's being love, God's love is not something that's just said. How often do we say that? I, I love this thing or that, and then there's very little action. But God's love is something, is a love that is shown and he shows it to us in this as, as John goes through. Not, um, made manifest in this that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The implication of verse 9 is that we were dead. 
That humanity was dead. So God sent His Son so that we might live through Him. And so the question then becomes, what does God gain in our deadness? Or what does God lose in our deadness? If we, existing in spiritual deadness, is God less glorious because we are dead? Is God less holy because we were dead? Is He less magnificent? Is He less loving? Is He less gracious? Is He less merciful? Because we existed in a place of spiritual deadness. Let's not forget that God is an eternal God. That before creation ever was, God is. And God is a God who does not change. So if we're putting our thinking caps on, that means before we ever were, God was. And God was holy. God was magnificent. God was loving. God was gracious. God was merciful. God was all that who God is today for all eternity past, if you could call it eternity past. God does not change. So then you begin to say, okay, well, does God gain something through our being made alive? Is He more holy now because He's made us alive in Christ? Is He more magnificent? Is He more loving? Is He more gracious now? Same answer. Let's not forget the fact that in Exodus 33, as we talked about, what was God's response to Moses wanting to see the glory of God? No man can see my face and live. That's got to tell us something of this, that perhaps the most loving, the most merciful thing that God could do for us in in our fallen state is not bring us to utter destruction by showcasing Himself in all of His glory. It would destroy us. So he has shown us. The beaming of his glory is last week the angels themselves concealing their faces. But we have seen the glory, the glory of the one true God in Jesus. We have seen glimpses of his glory all throughout uh, the scriptures as God interacts and dwelt with his people. But he is so good to us that he has made us alive because if we are totally honest, if anybody stood to lose something in, their, in our deadness, it was us. We stood to lose everything. And we are the ones who stand to gain everything in being made alive. And so as you look at this act of love on God's part, we might say that God's love is so selfless that He's looking out for our good. We didn't deserve it. We did not merit it. God, what does God stand to gain in who He is? He existed in perfect unity and community for all of eternity apart from us. And so He did this out of His love for us, serving selflessly. So God did not merely look then in, in this mission to make us alive and simply give us a, a list of rules that we would follow so that only the few, only the strong, only the dedicated would ever rise to the heights of the good graces of God by achieving these rules. Now, God did give us a list of laws. 
We call it the Torah. We look at the beginning of the Scriptures. But this law was never meant to give us righteousness. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. Now does that sound like such a loving thing to do? That God would give a law just so that it would be a mirror for us to look into and see what a wretched man I am. So that I would be imprisoned and always under sin. But Paul says the reason God did this with the law was not just to condemn, but so that by faith we might take hold of the promise which comes through His Son, which now John is saying is the greatest demonstration, the manifestation of God's love, that He sent His only Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That God, as we look at this, sending His, giving of Himself, His only. In other words, not that God just has all these sons, that He could just throw all these sons, but He gave His one and His only Son on our behalf. What a great act of love. And so we begin to see that this love, as God demonstrates it, so selfless, so sacrificial, that Jesus comes to, to deal with sin because it, it makes sense in one way for us to look at this and say, uh, moving into verse 10, that in this is love as he continues, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. You know, it makes sense for the lesser to love the greater, right? And before we think, well, what does that mean? Think of the world around us with celebrities and sports athletes. So you go and, and people flock to these celebrities. They totally lose their cool because the person that is so widely known acknowledged them. It makes sense for the fan to adore and love the celebrity, the big name. What doesn't make sense is when the greater loves the lesser, it's something for us as we look at celebrities. If you have an interaction, you want to go to a Bulls game, and one of the, say back in the day, Michael Jordan comes up and shakes your hand at the game. I'm never washing this hand again because the greatest has shaken my hand. To him, it's what? Shaking somebody's hand. Think of the kids as they go and they get a, a ball at a baseball game. It's the greatest thing in the world because the pros touched this ball. They put it in a case in their room and it's some special thing. It's just another ball to them. It makes sense for the lesser to love the greater. What ought to shake our world is when the greater loves the lesser. That's what John is saying. In this is love. Not that we loved God. That ought to make sense. He's greater than us. We are lesser. It would make sense that we would love this, this magnificent being, this great and wonderful God. But in this, his love is that he loved us so selflessly, so sacrificially, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, John's words remind me somewhat of Romans chapter 5, where Paul writes, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows His love for in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The mission all along was not simply to send His Son to make contact with the sinners. The mission was not to send His Son to simply form some sort of basic relationship with humanity, to connect to the divine and just say hi. 
The mission was always the cross. Christ emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. As Paul writes in Philippians, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The mission was always sacrificial. From its conception, to its implementation, to its execution. And this propitiation for our sins, this appeasing of God's holiness, His righteousness, His justness, His wrath, His love of all of who God is came in the form of praying, paying the price and penalty for sin, which is death. That He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that John right in this, the love of God was made manifest among us in this. And so we look at God's love being a selfless love, not selfish. If you want to go back up to that, that quote uh, from that book, as the culture defines love, it depends on knowing yourself, expressing yourself, actualizing yourself, doing what's right for you. God's love is altogether different from that selfless, sacrificial, it's a sanctifying love. And you're like, well, Jeremy, where do we see sanctifying love in the text? Well, it's right there in verse 10 that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, Jesus came to deal with sin. Sin was the issue. Sin is what made us dead and separated from God. And Jesus came to deal with sin. So how crazy, how foolish would it be to take the saying to say that God, in His love, just loves us simply as we are. He loves me entirely just for me and is content with leaving me as me. Because God loves me. Well, God just created me this way. I happen to struggle with anger, but God loves me. He created me with an anger problem, so He understands. How foolish is it for us to think that the one thing that Jesus came to so selflessly and sacrificially deal with, that we would then say, God's just totally fine with it. That the love of God seeks not just to affirm where we are, but may accept and welcome us as sinners, but His love will change us. His love should change us. Because He is a God who deals with sin. Now make no doubt where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Romans. But that is not a license for us to continue on in sin. And so our culture's mantra, our perception of love, that it simply just is there, you're loving other people, is to help them find their fire. Whatever that may be. What a dangerous definition of love. God loved us enough to say, you're, on, you're in a bad place. You're in a really bad place. And I was thinking about the, the person who maybe built their home, right? With their own blood, sweat, and tears. They built it from the ground up. Uh, they raised their family in this home. And now their kids are gone. Their, their grandkids come back and spend time at this home. And one day they find themselves sitting in the family room and their house is burning around them. And someone says, no, no, no. Just leave them be. They love their home. That home's going to destroy you right now. That home is going to end you. Would the loving thing be to sit out beside the window and say, but they love that, they love that couch. 
They love that family room. They love all the memories. They love this place. Don't take them out of it. The loving thing would be to bust through that window and say, your house is going to burn you to death. You need to get out of this house right now. But somehow we have switched that whole thing to say, no, the loving thing is just to, yeah, you're, you're good. You do you. That's love. And it's easy, and frankly, I was struggling with this somewhat this week. It's easy to, in a very quick response, say, well, of course not. It's not love. That doesn't make sense. Until it's somebody coming and talking to us. Someone who's coming to Jeremy and saying, listen, Jeremy, dude, you're a little bit out of line. Get your act together. Shape up. Criticism can hurt. Sometimes criticism is the most loving thing that you need. God loved us so much that he did not just leave us to ourselves, but he sent his only son to be the propitiation for our sins that we might live through him. In that, the love of God is made manifest. So now... As you look at John's message here in this chapter, in this passage, his application of God's love for us, his application of God being love, is that we would then love one another. Because that's what's consistent, because now we are in God's love, therefore we ought to love one another as God loved us. Not just in our own conveniences, not just in what's comfortable for us, not just in the easy ways, but to love as God has loved, that we now might love one another selflessly. When's the last time you did something for somebody to demonstrate your love for them with zero expectation of return whatsoever? That if you got nothing, not even a thank you, you're still going to do it. When's the last time that you loved somebody to the point that it hurt you? You gave sacrificially to love someone. With your grandkids, your spouse, your own children. What about a neighbor? That we would love as God loved us because we know that God has now become the source for our love for one another. We cannot love as God has loved us apart from God. We abide in Him. We abide in His love. And so we seek, just as God has done, to serve selflessly. We seek to love one another sacrificially we seek to love one another in a sanctifying way. That as we engage with one another, as we do life with one another, we would spur each other on. So Josh gets up here and talks about small groups. That's what small groups are for, to come and do life with one another, to rub shoulders with one another, to know each other's lives so that we can spur each other on, that we can encourage, we can equip, 
We can embrace one another in all the facets of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and everywhere in between. That we're not in this thing alone, but that we are the singular, unified body of Christ brought together in His blood that He gave for us. So as we close this out, let us continue to seek ways to manifest God's love amongst each other in our own lives. That we would love as we've been loved, knowing this, that God's love is secure. As we've sung even this morning, as we'll sing even in a little bit, that God's love does not just change from day to day. That God's love is not to be robbed of us. Nobody can take us away from God's love. Romans chapter 8, I'll close with this. Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus.